Welcome back. We're going to go ahead and get started with our song service today. And uh, please come on in and have a seat. And first song today is number 21. Immortable, immortal, invisible, God only wise. Do we have a script or we don't have a script? We don't have a script. song is 228. Trying to locate the next song. 289. 
for a request. Anybody have a request today? 100 opening song great is thy faithfulness number 100 all three verses and stand up for
you may be seated. I want to welcome you to our last, sort of last, restoration meeting. This was uh, not really planned from the beginning, but it's a pleasure to uh, have our speaker here once more. I just want to explain what's going to happen uh, this afternoon. We will uh, have Dr. Dupre. He's going to give a, a short presentation on ethics, uh, and then we're going to be taking questions. And the way we'll do the questions is we'll have the ushers come forward. Actually, you can come forward now. Um, the ushers are going to pass out uh, cards that you can write on, whatever questions you may have. And uh, they'll collect those um, in a short while. But you can write your questions out and go ahead and pass them out. Um, you can write your questions down. If you need a pen, um, raise your hand. We'll try and get one to you. And uh, I want to say that who has the real answers to all of our questions? God does. Where can we find the real answers? In the Bible. Okay. Uh, I don't want to slight Dr. Dupre, but he is not the ultimate source of truth. And so we want to encourage you to study the scriptures to find the answers to your questions. He's going to try uh, to give the answers as balanced and as biblical as he knows. Um, and I want to say that we may not be able to answer every question. I don't know how many are going to come in. Uh, I don't know what kind of questions we'll have. Uh, so if your question does not get answered today, I don't, don't be angry, don't be upset or anything. Uh, I just want to say, you know, we, we will try to do as much as we can, um, but we'll just have to see how things go. If you have a question during uh, the, the meeting, you can go ahead and write it down or raise your hand and an usher will come and, and give you a card and then you, um, the ushers will take those cards as well uh, and they'll bring them up to uh, the front. So uh, with that, we'll have, I'm going to just have a short word of prayer here, um, and then we do have a special music, um, and then after that, Dr. Dupre will come up. So with that, let's have a word of prayer. Dear Father in heaven, we thank you that we can find answers in your scriptures and your holy word. We thank you that your Holy Spirit is here to guide us into those answers. Lord, I pray that you would speak through Dr. Dupre that those answers uh, would come today if possible, but that you would be guiding, that you would be leading in our lives, and that we would find the answers that our soul really longs for. Lord, we give this session to you. Let your Holy Spirit be here. I pray that your Spirit would be the one answering the questions. In Jesus' name. Good afternoon. My name's Catherine Morua, and um, I am blessed to be here with you guys today. I wanted to share a little message about this song. It's called Covered. We're covered by God's grace. And it has to do with everything that we're doing here with restoration, which is what Christ did for us, and remembering what he did. And I just want you guys to look for Jude 24 in your Bibles, and if a brave volunteer would stand up and read it out loud. And I'll give you a little history behind this song. I was thinking about Mary Magdalene, and I was thinking about what she saw when she looked into Jesus' eyes. And I was asking God the question, since he has the ultimate answers. 
And he showed me Jude 24. One look can say so much. And I just imagine Jesus' look must be so deep and so beautiful and communicate to us so much. And this is what he communicated to her through his look. What is it? Jude 24. Amen. He's able to keep you from stumbling and present you faultless before his throne. And that is what this song is about, covered. single time I can talk 
isn't song a blessing? We're going to do just two more verses of one song, and that is number 86 in your hymnals. Number 86, we'll do just the first and the last verses. blessing sharing together here. Let me begin right at the start. I get a little feedback here, Mark. Somebody can work on that sound a little bit there. I appreciate it. Um, the area in which I love to study and love to read is in the area uh, of making decisions, because that's where the rubber meets the road. That's important. You know, you can know a lot about the word, but unless, unless you know how to make decisions, you can really mess up. And so I try to share that and make it as simple as possible. There's a lot in this area. There are tough questions. Some have already come in, but we've got to give you a little background so you'll understand. And I'm going to move through this quickly. Where do we start? We always start at the beginning, and that is, we have been saved how? By grace. When we've been saved by grace, we want to serve the Lord. Uh, open up your Bible to two quick passages of Scripture here, and as you open them, I just want to have a prayer. Lord, oh, bless us as we open your word. Help us to see and read these texts in the right context so we can best 
see Jesus and his love. In his name we pray, amen. You have your Bibles, you're taking them out. Incidentally, I came across this, uh, this little story here. A mother was preparing pancakes for her sons, Kevin, five, and Ryan, three. The boys began to argue who would get the first pancake. Anybody have two kids at home? You know what I'm talking about, all right? Their mother saw the opportunity for a moral lesson. That's what we're going to deal here with today, moral lessons. So she said, if Jesus were sitting here, he would say, let my brother have the first pancake. I can wait. Kevin turned to his younger brother and said, Ryan, you be Jesus. Kids, clever, tricky, but we're all like Ryan, aren't we? Looking out for ourselves, our selfish human nature. But let's look what the Bible says, John chapter 14, verse 15, and then we'll go to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, uh, 5, 5, verse 14. But 1 John 14, 15, just a quick reminder, the words of Jesus, the danger of us always looking out for ourselves. Ryan, you be Jesus, so you can give me the first pancake, yes. John chapter 14, verse 15, a well-known passage, very well-known passage. Oh, that's why. Yeah, it slipped back. Thank you. Yeah, good. You guys caught that. My mic had slipped behind. That's what the problem was. John 14, verse 15, well-known passage. If you love me, what? Keep my commandments. So love is the foundation, and then loyalty is the natural result. Let's go to one more verse. First. Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14. First Corinthians 5, verse... Must be Second Corinthians because there ain't 14 verses in that one. So, ah. Don't go here by memory. Yeah, that's the Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14. Okay. For the love of Christ. King James says what? Constraineth us. What is constraineth? New King James says compels us. All right? The love of Christ compels us because we judge thus that if one died for all, then all died. Just the first part. The love of Christ compels us. It motivates us. Or, as another translation put it, since we believe that Christ died for everyone. Okay? So here is Jesus Christ. He compels us. He motivates us. He gets us to do things. If we love Him, we will obey Him. Foundational. That's key. The question is, what do we do? And so I want to give a little more background here because the issue is is so contentious, and I, I used this before. I didn't ask Adrian to have it ready, but some of you will remember I used this way at the beginning. Don't bother me. I'm looking for a verse of Scripture to back up one of my preconceived notions. That's the danger we all face. We want to look for things that support us. And you know what's interesting? Oh, if you really are open to the Word, you're going to have to change some of your views. Did you know that? Yes. I actually wrote it in, in one of my things. I said, I've changed my view on this, I've changed my view on that. I've had to change because I've had to be open to the scriptures. And so today I want to give you a little bit of background to warn you, to make you aware. Uh, because another cartoon or uh, drawing we used once was this one that says, come on, come on, it's either one or the other. Damned if you do, damned if you don't. Have you heard that one? Okay, you have to cho choose the lesser of two evils. And so, I want to lay the foundation, and very clearly, the first thing as a Christian you've got to understand and know is that, number one, God loves you, that's why He rescued you, and number two, 
after he rescues you, redeems you, he has requirements. Question, can you, by his grace, to his glory, through his power, obey him? Yes, that's right. What does the Bible talk about in the book of Revelation? Overcomers. Did you notice that? Over and over in the Bible, overcomers. So we know that we can do that. Jude 24, that was just mentioned. First Corinthians, go to First Corinthians chapter 10, one of my favorite verses. I want to give you the background here so that you are clear before we even get into difficult questions that there is an answer. Listen to this. First Corinthians chapter 10, let's go to verse 13, one of my favorite verses. Not 31, 31, yes, do all to the glory of God, but verse 13. This one is packed with important principles that impact virtually every question in life. This one verse. If you forget every other verse, here is one of the most important verses, which is one reason we needed to sing number 100. Great is what? Thy faithfulness. Let's read that verse and unpack that foundationally here. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 13. It's a long verse. A lot of information there. If you want to take notes, here are about five or so many points that come from this one verse. Number one, no temptation. I'm stopping right there because you know the word temptation there. Perasmos, by the way, in the Greek, it means temptation. It includes a trial or a test. So it's not just a temptation. You might have a trial that isn't a temptation. You know, your test is coming, your exam. Oh, it's not a temptation, it's a trial. This word covers that too. No test, no trial, no temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. Number one, don't ever say, I'm the only one who's got this problem. Paul says, uh-uh, guess what? Someone else. As how does Solomon say, there is no new thing under what? Under the sun. So don't complain that you're unique. You're not the only one. Say, oh, okay, I'm not unique. First thing, don't think you're the only one. Now he goes for the, now after he tells you, you're not unique, notice what he says next. But, four words, but God is what? That's key, folks. So firstly, you're not unique, but God is unique in this sense. He is faithful. You can trust God irrespective. You've got to have that very clear. God is faithful. Number two, you're not unique, number one. God is faithful, number two. And now let's see what God will do, this faithful God. God is faithful, number three now, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able. Never say, the stress, the trial I've gotten is way beyond what I'm able. You are then contradicting the clear word of Scripture. You might say, I don't see a way out. <laughs> at this point in time, or I don't know how I can handle it. Oh, because, but I know that you, Lord, will help me to handle it. God has promised. He is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. Number four, the text is not done yet, but with the temptation will also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. That one text is key for any question or major problem of decision-making in your life. It focuses upon God, His faithfulness, and His promise of a way out. The problem with us, myself included, we suffer from eye trouble. We cannot see clearly. And sometimes people put that on what is called the horns of a dilemma. Let me share with you a quick story. He was a young man. He was studying for the ministry. And he got up in front of a Seventh-day Adventist church on Sabbath as a student in training. And he opposed this question to the Adventist congregation. He said, folks, I have one quick question for you. Which would you rather be? Listen carefully now. 
a hateful vegetarian, a vengeful vegetarian, or a pleasant, peaceful, loving pork eater. caused quite a stir, quite a stir. That young man dropped out of the training for the ministry. He became a psychologist. <laughs> it's true, it's true. It's, uh, he, he left the faith, but he's come back. Praise the Lord. But you see, the problem with that is giving you two options. Question, what other options can you see now that you realize you must never allow people to put you on the horns of a dilemma? Because as you well know, a loving pork eater, or I call it a peaceful pork eater, and a vengeful vegetarian are both what? Wrong. They're unacceptable. Other options. Let's hear. I said, we're going to talk together. What a peaceful vegetarian. Oh, yeah, you're right. Absolutely. In fact, it's much easier to be a peaceful vegetarian because we, all, we know what happens. You know, meat has a certain kind of effect upon us. They've done tests. I mean, you, it's a fact. Or you could be a what? Vengeful pork eater. Yeah, of course. That's the fact. There's a fifth action, you, fifth thing you, not, you haven't mentioned yet. You can go hungry. You can say, Lord, I'm going to fast until I see a better way out. Psalm 27, 14. Open your Bibles. I want to show you. This is very important. There are times, folks, when we don't see an answer to a problem. Don't jump at what appears to be the lesser of two evils. Notice, the lesser of two evils. Be careful. There's a thing called patience. Patience. Psalm 27 verse 14. My Bible says what? Wait on the Lord. Be of good courage. And He shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, what? On the Lord. Wait on the Lord. Patience is important. Now go to Proverbs quickly. We want to go and look at what the wise man Solomon shares with us right here. Very well-known passage. Quickly, Proverbs. Then I'll, I'll give you a little more foundation and we can then go to our questions. Okay. Um, trying to remember my verse now. Lean not unto, on thine own understanding. 3, 5, and 6. Thank you. Trust in the Lord. Trust in the Lord. Proverbs 3, 5. Proverbs 3, trust in the Lord with what? 90%? What does it say? All. That's the key. Let me warn you, in every decision in life, the key question is, do you, do I trust in the Lord? Believing He is faithful. There it is. Trust in the Lord. Key, folks, trust in the Lord with all your heart. And what? Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He shall direct your paths. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. Okay, very clear. Don't depend on your own ideas. So key is trusting in the Lord. And one more passage that is key as we lay the foundation, the words of Jesus going out to the, the Sermon on the Mount. We'll always end up there, it seems. Sermon on the Mount is packed with precious promises and principles. Sermon on the Mount. This is one of the most important in making decisions. Now this one might scare you, might surprise you. I shared this one day, and one of my elders, he was my assistant head elder, said, wait a minute, no way. I'm a computer specialist, that's the way I always make decisions. And I shared with him, it is not biblical. Hmm, yeah, hold on, you're going to see right now. Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. Very important passage, very important concept. 
comes very clearly. Why do I say that? Let me ask you, how many of you have said, but what am I going to do if I do this? Verse 25, Matthew 6, 25, Therefore I say to you, do not worry about life, what you will eat, what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Go to verse 31. Therefore, do not worry, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows what you need, all that you need all these things. Verse 33. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow. The biggest flaw in thinking and trying to figure things out, virtually everyone reasons, if I do this, that's going to happen. It's called consequential reasoning. Remember this key statement, consequential reasoning, absolutely not biblical. Jesus says, who worries about the future? Go back to verse 32. The Gentiles, those who don't believe, they worry about tomorrow. Don't worry about tomorrow. Why? God will take care of you. Very important principle. In moral reasoning. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I know you want to buy a car. You say, which car that I can invest in will have a good mileage? You have to think about that. Which car will have the best resale value when I sell it? We're not talking about cars. We're talking about moral issues. You never say, if I do the right, what's going to happen? We don't reason that way. That is not biblical. Biblical is simply, you do what is right, though the heavens fall. Ever heard that statement? The greatest want of the world, the greatest need in the world, is the need of men. Men who will stand for the right, what? Though the heavens fall, you've heard that statement. I'll give you the biblical material in a minute on that. That's very, very critical. Many of you know the story of Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, right? Better known as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Critical. I'm going to go to those verses because this captures the whole thing. Then we can start looking at questions. All right, here it is. Because their life captures the concept of Jesus. Daniel chapter 3. We'll just pick up two verses there. Daniel 3 here. In other words, Jesus says to do it. Did people do it? Yes. And we always look at Daniel and the Revelation. So let's look at the example here on Daniel chapter 3. And then we'll give you the verse from Revelation that ties in with it. And we'll start looking at these very questions I have right here. And there are more coming in a few minutes. Okay, Daniel chapter 3. They are now facing the king. The king has called them. Okay, they have not bowed. Then he asks them the question. Daniel chapter 3 verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Well, Answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. Or, as one translation says, we don't have to defend ourselves. Why not? Who's our defense? God is our defense. Now notice verse 17. If that is the case, if you're going to throw us into the fire furnace, if that's the case, okay, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. Four factors that come out of there that's crucial if you want to be able to make right decisions. Our God, they had a personal relationship with God. Okay? Not my father, you know, he's a pastor. <laughs> uh, my father's God. They could have said the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. No, no. Our God. Personal relationship is key. 
Then they went further. Whom? What? Whom we serve. It's a personal relationship, our God. Number two, whom we serve. They had a practical religious experience. Remember the pot I told you about this morning? They weren't pressure cookers without lids on them. They were genuine pressure cookers. They were practical religious experience. Then they went further. They said, our God, whom we serve, what? Is able. You remember that song we used to sing years ago? Is able, is able, I know is able. I know my Lord is able to carry me through. You believe that still? Yes. So number three, they believed in the power of God. They went further and they said, He will deliver us. Still the same verse. They believed in God's promises. But the key fact is the next verse, folks. This is key. You can have a personal relationship, a practical religious experience. You believe in the power of God. You trust in the promises of God. But when the rubber meets the road, do you talk about verse 18? And this is the groundwork. Verse 18. But if not. One translation says, But even if, even if God doesn't save us from the fiery furnace, what are we going to do? Do you think, O king, let's read the rest. Even if God doesn't save us, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not, we will not serve your gods nor worship the gold image which you have set up. The fifth and final critical point in the practice of living for the Lord in the last days, be faithful to the principles of God. The last one comes out from that. They had a personal relationship, a practical religious experience. They believed in the power of God. They trusted in the promises of God, but then they were faithful to the principles of God. Now, let's go to Revelation and catch that verse there. And here it is. This is the foundation. In fact, once we, what I've done now, by the time we've done this, you might say, well, we don't have any more questions. Ah, I wish that were so. Revelation chapter 2, yes, it's talking about the seven churches. I'm only extracting the principle here. Revelation chapter 2, verse 10. This is to the church of Smyrna. Okay. Do not fear. The first part of verse 10. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to what? Suffer. In simple terms, here's a phrase I would like you to write down. Five words. Fear, four words, fear not the future. There it is. Four words. Say it with me. Fear not the future. That's the beginning of that. Now go down to the end of the verse. Then it says the last 12 words or so. But be what? Faithful unto what? Unto death. And I will give you the crown of life. What's the first part of the phrase I said? Fear not the future, the last part of the phrase, have faith in the Father. Say it with me. Have faith in the Father. Repeating from the beginning. Fear not the future. Have faith in the Father. Key foundation of all moral decision making. Very, very clear, biblically speaking. Now, with that background, let's look at some of these questions. That helpful? Give you the foundation? Don't worry about tomorrow. Here it is. The first one, by the way, is a general one. And this one is very good if you really want to start moving. This is not simply in the area of making decisions. This is part of the groundwork. I haven't read much Bible. Where should I start? If you're going to get into the Word, I would recommend, if you're just kind of getting going, go to the New Testament. In the New Testament, go to the book of John. Read through the book of John. 
this gospel brings to fore in a wonderful way, clear and in, in a clear and a crisp way, the loving Jesus we serve. He was not called John the Beloved for no reason. Here John the Beloved shares with you a beautiful story of Jesus. Now, what you need to do is read, put aside 15 minutes per day, minimum 15 minutes a day, read the Word. Another 15 minutes, reflect, meditate, pray. Spend time with the Lord. Every day. How many, how many of you, by the way, eat every second day? Nobody here. How about once a week? Ah, you get my point? Sometimes the only time we get spiritual food is when we come to church. Who of you eats every day? Are you afraid? I see the hands going up. I knew you'd do that. And so what do I say? Make sure you feed on the Word every day. And if you feed on the Word every day, you will be able to withstand many of those things that you wouldn't have been able to withstand. So that's a key one. Get into the book of John. Once you've read them, spend time reflecting and ask God to put those principles into your lives. Find how you can practically apply them. Next question that goes to the heart of the matter. Is it possible to keep the Ten Commandments since we are sinful human beings? Why should I even try? Okay, good question. Sinful. What is sin? The Bible defines it what? Transgression of the law. Ah, which means, yes, it must be in that whole context. The only, only the reason we say sin is a transgression of the law. Think about this for a moment. Those slaves who came out of Egypt, who did God give the Ten Commandments to? To perfect human beings? The Ten Commandments, originally, yes, God did expect Adam and Eve to live by His law of love, expected, but when they came out of Egypt, He reiterated it. Incidentally, I mentioned before, the Ten Commandments, you can find all of them in the book of Genesis before Exodus arrives. Did you know that? Even the Lutheran theologian, Walter Kaiser, written a book called Toward Old Testament Ethics, 1983, and he says, every one of the Ten Commandments you can find in the book of Genesis is right. It was just reiterated to remind the group of slaves who had come out, the Israelites, so God gave the Ten Commandments to the Israelites. Open your Bibles. I just found that this, this week as I was reading, you know, this is what's exciting about reading the Word. I thought I'd read the Bible through. I had, yes, but I never saw this passage. Today, it jumped out at me, and I had to share it with Jason and Janelle, because I'm staying with them now. Uh, Norman's family is with him this weekend. I've spent about two weeks, three weeks? How long, Norman? Three? Yeah. Close to three. But anyway, we're there. And now I'm with Jason now for the end, Jason and Janelle. And here I was. I discovered that this just about two days ago. And I went to chapter 6. And it goes like this. The kids will come and ask you. Verse 20. Let's go to verse 20. When your son... This is Moses. His farewell address, remember? He's, he's about to die, right? They are going to cross over into... Across the Jordan River, going to the Promised Land. And Moses says, now listen, when your son asks you in time to come, saying, what is the meaning of the testimonies, the statutes, and the judgments which the Lord our God has commanded you? Okay, uh, Daddy, what are these Ten Commandments? What does it mean? Notice, Moses doesn't say, tell them, God wants you to be obedient. If you're disobedient, you're going to suffer. doesn't do that. What does Moses say by inspiration? He says, now, nah, nah. then you shall say. Let's go to verse 21. Your kid comes and says, Daddy, tell me about God's laws. What does he say? Moses says, this is the way, parents, to teach your children. Verse 21, critical. Then you shall say to your son, Oh, son, we were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt. Aha, where do we start? We were stuck in bondage. Tell the story. 
Don't get to the laws. Hold on, not yet. Don't run ahead of the Lord. Tell them, we were slaves in Egypt and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Give God the glory. Start with the story, right? In other words, remember the first M. The first M is the might of God. I'm going to give you a few things that came directly out of this. Beautiful. Tell your kids about the might of the God we serve. But don't stop there. Keep going. Moses says, And the Lord showed His signs, signs and wonders before our eyes. What other M do you think I'm thinking of right now? Miracles, that's right. Tell them about the power of God. Right? But tell them about the miracles of God. That not only is God powerful, He is supernatural. We serve a mighty God. We serve a miracle-working God. Before our eyes, great and severe against Egypt, Pharaoh and his household. Then, notice, so first comes what? The might of God. Next, tell them about the miracles of God. Don't stop there. Go now and tell them. Then He brought us out from there, there that He might bring us in to give us the land of which He swore to our fathers. Did these people deserve the land? No. The third M is the mercy of God. God brought us here. He keeps His promises. This is our merciful Father. Now only, the fourth M, do you tell them about the mandates of God, what He requires. Tell them up with the might, the miracles, the mercy. Now say, oh, oh, now let me tell you. And the Lord God commanded us to observe all these statutes. You got the sequence? Very clear. So, in other words, is it possible to keep the commandments as sinful human beings? What's the answer? Yes. It definitely, Philippians chapter 2, verse 13 and 14. Let's go there right away. Philippians chapter 2, 13 and 14. Let's see what the Bible says. Again. Philippians 2, 13 and 14. That one in Deuteronomy has a beautiful sermon there, as you can see. I just summarized it. I just saw it as I was reading. I said, hey, here is something exciting. How? It's a good sermon for parents, uh, uh, you know, when we talk about family and all those things. Philippians chapter 2. Let's look at what Paul reminds us right here. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. One of those texts that gives me courage. Therefore, my beloved... As you have always obeyed. Is it possible to obey? What does Paul say? Yes, you've obeyed. Not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Paul says, I'm not there with you anymore in Philippi. Now what does he say? Listen carefully. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. <gasps> Paul, salvation by works? No, there's not a period there. The sentence continues. Don't stop me in the middle of my sentence. Okay? Listen further. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Why? For it is who? It is God who works in you both to will and to do of His good pleasure. Question. Is it possible to keep the Ten Commandments? Should I even try? What does, what does God tell us through Paul? What's the answer? Yes. Because He will work through you to do His good will. The most important thing we need to do every day, folks, every day, Paul uses the phrase, I die, how often? Daily. Daily dying to sin. That's why daily devotions is so vital. Many of you might not have been there when I shared my own testimony. I had been reading the Bible, but there was one year of my life that is the most miserable mess I've made. It was the year I did not read the Scriptures faithfully. I messed up, I sinned, I hurt people. 
I don't want to remember that, except remember how horrible it was, and therefore I know every day I must depend upon the Deliverer Himself, Jesus Christ. So the answer is, yes, you and I can live overcoming lives only through His sustaining grace. Next question is right here. What happened to it? Oh. Behind, oh yeah, you guys are watching what I'm doing. Thank you. As a doctor, or medical doctor, I'm assuming, what is okay to do on the Sabbath? Mm. Jesus' words. Open your Bibles to, to Matthew and Matthew chapter 12, verse 12, and Mark chapter 2, verse 25 and 26 and 27. Now, I want you to notice, please, folks, we're always going back to the Bible, and you can notice, by the way, I'm just giving you a few verses. You can read the context. In the context, it's there. I'm not choosing them out of context. I'm just giving you quickly, and you can check on me, and if I'm wrong, I'll never forget the day a student in class raised his hand. He was doing graduate work, and he said, Professor, at Southern, I think, I was teaching there, I think you have missed the boats. He did much more kindly than that. I said, well, tell us. And so he shared, he went to the Bible, and he shared everything. I said, class, please ignore what the professor just said five minutes before. That student is biblically correct. Thank you. Yes, we're all traveling the same road together, are we not? We must be here to help each other. If I do something, take it out of context, please talk to me. Okay, let's see if we can correct these things. Now let's go here. Where was I? What verse did I tell you? Matthew 12, 12, and then Mark chapter 2, yes. The story here where they were going through the grain fields. Matthew 12, 12, and uh, what does Jesus say? Of how much more value then is a man than a sheep? Therefore it is what? Lawful to what? To do good on the Sabbath. Let's go to Mark chapter 2, 27, 28. Again, the context was discussion. They, there were many things, 39 regulations that the Jews in their over-enthusiastic eisegesis of Scripture had added on to the fourth commandment. And they didn't want to do certain things. Jesus said in verse 27, and he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, or in modern language, the Sabbath was made for the benefit of man, for the blessing of man, for the good of man, so we could be refreshed spiritually. Yes, we also get a physical rest too. The Sabbath was made for the benefit of man, not man for the Sabbath. Therefore, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus shows us, reminds us how we should enjoy, as I called it, the day of what? Anybody remember? Day of, what I gave it the term, day of delight. That's the Bible. I added another thing on. Day of freedom. And the reason I did that, because some people say, we must be free from the Sabbath. No, the, the Sabbath is a day of freedom. We're free from secular work. We're free to serve the Lord. We're free from worry. We're free to worship. It's a wonderful day of freedom. Not free from the day, but the day is a day of freedom. Now to the question, what should a doctor do? The, the, the Bible says clearly it is a day on which to do good. It is not a day on which to work. Did you hear the difference? It is not a day on which to work. What's the difference? This is very important. Very sadly, sometimes, sometimes, even Adventists for years, including myself, miss the boat. I remember working at Andrews University for campus safety. And I was so happy that I had a Friday night shift. Because what? I was working for an Adventist institution, and Friday night, 
Here I was putting in six, eight hours Friday evening, dozing in church, I mean, I'll admit, okay? It was kind of hard after staying up at night, looking, helping to look at the campus. And I then had more time during the week to study than my friends who used to mow the lawn. Because all the money I earned, I put in my pocket or put it towards my tuition. What was I actually doing on Sabbath? I was working. Very important. And the reason this is important, I talked with an Old Testament professor one day, and I said, tell me, what does the fourth commandment say in the Hebrew? In it thou shalt not do any work. You know the passage, okay? Exodus chapter 20, 8 through 11. Work is work to earn a living. If you do anything on the Sabbath that goes into your pocket to earn a living for yourself, in simple terms, all monies earned on the Sabbath, because I know legally, insurance-wise, you have to clock in, right? If, you, if your shift, all monies earned should be put into the treasury of the Lord. If you take any money that comes from any Sabbath work, which I plead guilty for doing myself when I was not enlightened according to clear biblical principles, then you have moved from doing good on the Sabbath, you've moved into the area of working on the Sabbath. And, and I remember a young man who came to me at Southern. He was the son of a pastor. I was teaching there and he came to me and said, but professor, listen, look, Let's be realistic, okay? <laughs> if I don't put in that eight-hour shift, I have to work five, eight-hour, or six, eight-hour shifts every week. And it just happens that one of my eight-hour shifts or six-hour shifts is on Sabbath. If I don't take that money and put it towards my tuition, I will not be able to pay my tuition. What is the issue? What's the T word? Trust. Trust. If then. Have you heard that? If then. Okay? If then. In other words, what was he looking at? The future. Okay, look at Isaiah chapter 46. Isaiah 46 verses 9 and 10. The Bible is very clear. Who is the only one who knows what's going to happen tomorrow? You know the passage. Let's go into it quickly. Isaiah 46, 9 and 10. And this is critical. All of us tend to want to go this way. Alright, look at this. Chapter 46 verse 9. Remember the former things of old. For I am God, there is no other. I am God, there is none like me, declaring what? The end from the beginning. From ancient times, things not yet done. In other words, you don't know the future, I don't know the future, therefore, just learn to trust in God. Let Him take care of it. It's none of my business. He knows what is best. I don't know. Therefore, leave it in his care. In fact, there are a couple of passage, passages in, in Ecclesiastes that says, no man knows the future. Years ago, I remember, there was a semi-secular song that used to go, que sera, sera, what? Whatever will be, will be. Why? The future is what? Not ours to see. We called it a secular song. It was one of the most biblical songs you could get in that part. Okay? Yes, it's not ours. It's God's, folks. That's the future. Too many of us say, if I do this, what's going to happen? That's none of my business. None of my business. So therefore, if you do have to do service on Sabbath, medical service, life-saving, by the way, we, it's restricted when you go to Scripture. It's, uh, it's trying to do good to relieve human suffering. It's not simply, by the way, Jesus' seven healings, none of them were emergency medical service. They were all things that could have waited for the next day. Wow, that's biblical. Yes, if you read the Bible careful, that's, that's what the... We've somehow missed it. We say, I will do emergency. No, it's relieving of human suffering free of charge to show that this is a day in which God wants people to come to a, to a better understanding of His love. 
free medical service to bring people closer to Jesus Christ. No pay. If you have to clock in, all monies should go into the treasury of the Lord. And that's an important statement. You can read it in a book called Medical Ministry. I believe it's page 213 or 99. One of the two pages, either 99 or 213. I get confused with those, Medical Ministry. But that's just putting it from a clear biblical perspective. Therefore, that answers, I hopefully, that question. The issue is, do I, do you trust God? What about medical student? Ah, medical students, let me challenge you here. Again, the same thing. If this is anything to do with your studies, say, no, this is God's day. I cannot be involved in that. I have to learn to trust the Lord. One of the sad stories was when I was in South Korea, a young lady was a Seventh-day Adventist, and in South Korea then you had to write exams on Sabbath. And the reasoning was as follows. If I don't write my exam on Sabbath, now what is that problem? Well, see, it's called what? Consequential thinking. If I don't write my exam on Sabbath, I'll fail my medical school, and then I cannot serve God and humanity. Therefore, I better write my exams on Sabbath. Compromise. Consequential thinking always takes you to compromise. Okay. Those are the basic questions. So remember, be faithful unto what? The phrase I taught you briefly was what? Fear not the future. Have faith in the Father. Okay, go ahead, Curtis. He's got some questions. He's trying to compile them there. Dr. Dupre, is it okay to kill during times of war? How about when the Israelites went to war? Why do you bring that question up now? That's kind of one that comes at the end. Okay. Well, I mean, I can address it, but uh, I would rather, because from that, there's always people who want to flock to me afterwards. And I'd be glad to, because that one has a lot of ramifications, so if you keep it towards the end, I won't be able to answer all of the ramifications. It's a major thing. A friend of mine wrote an entire 200-page thesis on this. I know it. I, I, he, he let me have it, a copy of it. It's a huge question. So keep that one for later on, and then when we have time to disperse, I'll even send you to some places where you can get more material on that. But I'll be glad to go to that. That's one of the toughest ones, which has a lot of discussion, especially because so many of us are saturated with loving patriotism. So we gotta, I'll keep that towards the end <laughs> and talk about that. How do you accept someone without accepting their sin? For example, homosexuality. Okay. <laughs> Curtis, I'm gonna love you after the storm. <laughs> ah, shall I give you a, a story to best illustrate that? Two quick stories, really. Believe it or not, he was a theology major. Did you hear what I just said? A theology major. He was studying in one of my classes at one place, one time. He switched majors, dropped out of school. The next time I heard, making a little story short, I heard he was living with his husband. Yeah. I tried to call him. I tried repeatedly. He was no longer near where I was teaching. I kept calling. I knew it was his phone because he had voicemail that would say, hello, let's say this is Bobby, for example, okay? Hello, this is Bobby, leave a message. I left message after message. I kept trying to call Bobby. Never answered, never returned my calls. I went to South, I went uh, to Zimbabwe, Southern Africa as a missionary. When I got back on furlough, call up, Bobby. No, never, he never Bobby never answers. You know, well, what can I do? One thing I could do is what? Pray. Came back from mission service, email, dear Dr. Dupre, 
I tried to find you. I contacted the general conference. They gave me your email. Because I know, how did he know? I kept bothering him with those phone calls, right? <laughs> he knew I'd been calling. He said, I just thank God that I knew you wouldn't give up praying for me. Okay? And you know what he said? I have had a radical reconversion. When I read that, I believe it was Friday, or whenever it came, Saturday night I got on the phone while my wife and others were having a social gathering. I was on the phone with this former theology major, former homosexual, hour and a half on the phone talking to him. And I was going to fly out to where he lived, and I said, I'm coming out there. I spent five to seven hours with him. And I told him one of the most incredible stories in the Bible, the life of Judah. How many of you have heard a sermon on the life of Judah? Raise your hands high. About ten of you. Well, praise the Lord. The most thrilling story here in the Bible. The one person who has the longest recorded speech in the entire book of Genesis. And you haven't heard a sermon about him. You've missed a major thrilling account because I shared with this young man the story of Judah's life and God's grace in the life of Judah. And it gave him courage. Because Judah was the son who left. He was the one who said, sell Joseph. I'm now compressing six sermons into three minutes. Just watch this quickly. It's an incredible story, and I would strongly urge you to read it. Judah was the, the profligate son. He was the guy who made all kinds of messes of his life. He went, he went and made friends outside. He, he made friends with a foreigner. He left the faith of his fathers. He, had a, he contracted a contra-faith conjugal relationship with a Canaanite woman. He raised rebel sons, brats, so wicked that the Lord slew two of them. And then, what does he do? As soon as his wife dies, he goes and he looks for sin. Because he's walking down the street and he sees somebody that he thinks is a woman of the street. And unlike Joseph, his brother, who flees from sin, Judah goes to her and says, Hey, can I go and sleep with you? This is Joseph, the soap opera of the Judah, the soap opera of the scriptures, if you please. No, no, it's not just juicy gossip. The story isn't over because Judah has a radical reconversion. He goes back home, chapter 42, verse 1, 2, and 3. You see that in Genesis, and the ten brothers are there, and they go down to Egypt. They come back. When they go on the second trip, it is only because Jacob the father now trusts Judah. He doesn't trust Reuben. He will not send Benjamin with Reuben, the oldest, the one who's supposed to be in charge, because Reuben is the useless, vacillating, weak-willed oldest boy who should have been the leader of his brothers. What happens? Judah says, Daddy, send Benjamin with me. Trust me, I guarantee his safety. And Daddy says, okay, Benjamin can go with you. I trust you. How come Judah is trusted by his father Jacob because he's had a radical reconversion? You read the rest of the story, chapter 43, chapter 44, verse 16, uh, verse 18. Judah comes now to the governor. He doesn't know it's Joseph. And he says, when Joseph now says, I'm going to keep this lad with me because he stole my cup. Judah says, no, sir. Verse four, chapter 44, verse 33. Please, let the lad go home to his father. I will take his place. Slavery in Egypt was a fate worse than death. Judah says, I will die for my brother. Send him back. Judah is a picture of Jesus Christ. And later on, when Jacob is about to die, fascinating thing. Even though Joseph had had the dream that your brothers will bow to you, when you get to chapter 49, guess what Jacob says? Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your brothers will bow down to you. The blessings are now transferred to Judah. Why, folks? No longer was it the, the person who had the priority. Re Reuben should have gotten the main blessings. 
Joseph was the petted one. Reuben was the prior one, the first one. Judah got the main blessings because he was the pardoned one. And the blessings are showered on him. Through Judah will come the line of kings. The kings did. And through Judah will come the king of kings. To him shall be the obedience of the nations. The king of kings is whom? Jesus Christ. And you get the book of Revelation, chapter 5, verse 5. And guess what Jesus is called in chapter 5, verse 5. Jesus, the lion of the tribe of what? Judah. The story of Judah is the most incredible story of how God is willing to save to the guttermost. The most incredible story. Judah is one of the most beautiful stories of Scripture. Okay? Now, why did I go there? <laughs> you laugh. I had three and a half hours sleep last night and about four the night before. So I'm here on half sleep. Keep me on track. Homosexual. Yeah, you see? So I'm serious. I got three and a half last night. And not because Jason and didn't let me sleep. I just woke up this morning early, before my alarm and... Uh, you know, sometimes the Lord has to speak to us. And he was talking in that sense ahead of time. So you've got to keep on track this afternoon. Yes, I shared that with that young man, who I'm calling Bobby. It gave him courage. It does not condone the sinner. It shows with a gracious God. And that young man told me, I, I've given this up. I quit that. I'm coming back. I'm still struggling with one thing. And then he wrote me an email sometime later. He says, the Lord has given me victory. You don't condemn, condemn the sinner. You condemn the sin. You show God's love towards them. That's the key. Go and spend time with the sinners. Did you hear what I just said? Yes. Not hanging out with them, but telling them about God's grace. That's the point. You don't condemn what they do. You say, listen, we serve a wonderful God. Come back. Come back. Very important. I'll keep the other one for later on. Is it permissible to lie at any time? For example, Rahab and the spies. Okay, that's question. Always comes up. Good old Rahab. Joshua chapter 2. You want to go there? Joshua chapter 2, the well-known story of Rahab. And I have a friend. I have a personal friend I've known for almost 30 years who has had the, what is the best term? The mendacity? The audacity? I don't know what it is. But whatever it is, the gall, the whatever, the temerity, to go and write an article and publish it in favor of the, it's good to lie. I went and talked with him. He took me out to lunch. I thought he was out to lunch. He's my good, my good buddy. He's a good friend of mine. I said for 30-something years, close to 30 years now. So we had lunch together, and I said to him, Hey, man, why did you do this? We talked. We had a good talk together. And I told him, I said, I'm concerned about what you have done. And, uh, and I said, I'm writing an article, and I'm going to publish it, disagreeing with you. Now, he's my friend. Remember that? Did you hear what I said? He's my friend. Yeah, he is. He still is, I hope. I haven't seen him since I wrote that article. <laughs> we don't live in the same place. But chapter 2, let's go to, to that famous story in Joshua. The infamous story. And, you know, let's just pick up a few verses here. So you can see that, yes, if, because some people might say, oh, she didn't lie. Okay, she did. So, verse 3, chapter 2, verse 3. So the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who have entered your house, for they have come to search out all the country. Then the woman took the two men. Actually, the woman had you, obviously. In some translations, they pointed out correctly and had hidden them. She said, yes, that's the first part of verse 4 is obviously in parentheses. She had done that. So she said, yes, the men came to me. Is that true? Yes. But I did not know where they were from. Is that true? No. She said, we have heard of you. We've heard of your God. Okay, first lie. Next, next lie. And it happened as the gate was being shut when it was dark, the men went out. Lie number two. Where the men went, I don't know. Lie number three. Pursue them quickly, uh, uh, for you may overtake them. Line number four. 
Ooh, not Rahab's lie, it's Rahab's lies. But, parenthesis, she had brought them up to the roof and hidden them with the stalks of flax which she had laid in order on the roof. Then the men pursued them. <laughs> Didn't pursue them, but they pursued who they thought they were, etc., etc. You know the rest of the story. And people say, but look, look, hold on. Let's go to the Hebrews. Let's go to the book of Hebrews. Rahab is mentioned right there. Let's go there quickly. Exciting. You see, God blessed Rahab for her lies is the statement being made. You know what I mean. Hebrews chapter 11. By faith, by faith, by faith. Verse 31. Hebrews 11, verse 31. I will admit, by the way, if I forget a verse or cannot find one, somebody help me. I left my computer concordance at home, unfortunately. So I might not get to a verse. Somebody help me with Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5. Thank you. Okay, so if there's a verse, many of you know your Bibles well enough, you'll help me get there. Verse 31. By faith, the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe when she received the spies with peace. Okay, she is in the hall of faith, right? But hold on, folks. Let's go a little further. Let's go. Let's look at the rest of them. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, and Samson? Wait a minute. You're kidding. Samson? Samson, the Samson of Samson and Delilah? Yes, that's the same one we're talking about here. And Jephthah. You mean Jephthah who killed his daughter? Yes. And David. You mean David who slept with Bathsheba? Yes. Okay, let's, let's not stop there. Wait a minute. What are all these crazy sinners doing here in the hall of faith, Lord? Ah, it's the story of God's grace who will rescue to the guttermost. That's the story of God's grace. He will pull people out and transform their lives. And yes, you know what? They might retain their nickname forever. The Bible in, in Hebrews calls her the harlot Rea. Did you notice that? She never lost her title. Now, here's my question, quick question. When she became a believer, do you think she continued to practice prostitution? I'm glad everybody said no. I didn't hear one yes. Praise the Lord. You're good. You know your Bibles. Now here's the question. Go back to Joshua chapter 2. And it's a thousand dollar offer. If anybody, you know that old thousand dollar offer? I'm just kidding, but you know what I mean by that. I don't want anybody to take me seriously here. I don't have a thousand dollars to give you. But but that's what they call it. The $64,000 question. Find in the book of Joshua anywhere where there's any word of condemnation against Rahab's prostitution. You don't find it. Not in the book of Joshua. How do we know that Rahab's prostitution was against God's law? Unacceptable in God's sight. How do we know it? Where do we go? God's law. Ten commandments. We don't go to stories. I have a something, I, when I sometimes teach, I say, now, folks, please listen carefully. Stories can be subtly subversive. Bible stories are some of the most dangerous things you can come across. And I'm serious now. I'm not joking. Case in point, a good friend of mine. I almost gave you more information than I should have. I just good a friend of mine. We'll stop right there. I know him very well. Okay? Reading Bible stories. Notice the logic. If you read Bible stories for what they are, and I'm going to give you a very important Bible principle in a minute. This is his, essentially, I'm simplifying his logic. Question number one. Was David a man of the God's own heart? Yes. Question number two. Did David have many wives? Question number three. Does God ever change his moral standard? Conclusion. Aha. David, a man of the gods in heart. God never changes his moral standards. David had many wives. One plus one plus one equals what? Equals what? Three. And three means what? 
And he called me on the phone. And he said, I've been studying the Bible. And I'm becoming more and more convicted about... This is interesting. People who go in these directions always use highfalutin language. About patriarchal plural marriage. PC. Politically correct for what word? Polygamy. You read the stories of the Bible? Very, very dangerous. There's only one safe story to read and to follow. What is that? The story of Jesus. So let's go now to the caution. Because I'm going to tell you the stories are very dangerous. And I'm going to go back to Rahab. I'm not going to forget this one. It's a crucial question. We've got to go to 1 Corinthians quickly. 1 Corinthians is the principle. Then we can answer the Rahab story. We've got to give you the principle. Chapter 10. Chapter 10 is talking about Old Testament stories. So we're going to the context. Okay? Paul is writing to the Corinthians and saying, Listen, brethren, I don't want you to be unaware that our fathers were all under the cloud, etc. Ah! And by the way, this will answer many questions. What I'm going to do here, all those Bible stories that cause all kinds of confusion, here it will solve all the Bible story questions you might have had. Here's the principle. We often go to verse 11. Now all these things happened to them as examples. They were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. And so, yes, they were examples to us. David, a man of the gods and art, that God doesn't change his moral principles. He had many wives. He's an example. And my friend took that. And what did he do? He ran with it. I said to him, wait a minute. What about your wife? What does she think? He was married. His response on the phone, well, let's call her. Oh, give, don't get a minute. She, she hasn't seen the light yet. I'm talking about Adventists. I'm talking about Caucasian Adventists here in the United States. Let's go to verse 6. Here it is, the key in verse 6. Now these things became our examples to the intent that we... Same words about... Oh, go to verse 11. These things became our, our examples. Did you notice that? Right? Verse 11, verse 8, 6, the same things. To the intent, here's the purpose, that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. In other words, don't do the bad things they did in the Bible. Key. Now, how do you know what's good and what's bad? You have to go back to the law of God. So here's the question. Rahab, did she do right or did she do wrong according to God's law? She broke the law. The next question is, did Rahab know the law? Not according to her. She says, we have heard of two things. We heard of how your God rescued you from Egypt through his mighty hand. He talks, she talks about the might of God and she talks about the miracles of God. She only talks about two. She doesn't talk about the mountain of God and his mandates. Rahab doesn't know about God's law. In fact, I one day said to a group of students, I said, here's the interesting thing. What's the difference? You know, because if you say, people say, oh, but life is the most important. And then I say, okay, okay. If life is the most important, and what if, what if the only way you can, you, you, you're working for your government, let's say, I'm not recommending you do this, but say you are working for your government as a spy, and you go to the other side, and you're supposed to get information from the general on the other side. I talked with students in class one day about this, and the ladies were insistent, life is the most important, you must do everything to save life. And I said, okay, the general of the army, you become friends with him, you go in there as a spy, and you think he doesn't know who you are, but after three or four months he says, look, I know who you are. I really don't agree with the side I'm fighting on. I'm, I really agree with your side, but I, I'm loyal only somewhat to this side because my family is here. But you know what? I'll give you the information on one condition. And by the way, we have a, a bomb that can destroy 10,000 of your soldiers. One condition. What is that? She says. He says, go to bed with me. 
I asked the ladies in the class that day, would you do it? They said, absolutely not. I said, wait a minute, I thought you said life, life is the most important. I thought you should do everything to save life. So they said, no, we won't do that. And I said, okay, well, what's the difference? Think about this. You will, you will lie to them, but you won't lie with them. It's simply a prepositional difference. What does James say? Let's go back to the book of James, chapter 2. He who breaks what? One law is what? Guilty of all. And what's he talking about? He's talking about the Ten Commandments. You know that passage so well. And so my question is, who gives you, who gives me the right to pick and choose the Ten Suggestions? Was that for, what was it called? Ten Commandments. There's no multiple choice, folks. Let's go to the book of James, just to remind you there. And these ladies got the picture. Wait a minute. This is not multiple choice. Verse 11, you can go back to verse 10. James chapter 2, verse 10. For whoever keeps the whole law, yet stumble in one, is guilty of what? All. For he who said, do not commit adultery, said, do not kill. If you do not commit murder, but you commit adultery, you become a transgressor of the law. So speak and do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. The critical thing that I try to get across to people is don't get caught in the false syndrome of having to choose between the lesser of two evils. Did you know what? There is no such thing as a moral dilemma. Did you hear what I just said? I will repeat. There is no such thing as a moral dilemma. Moral dilemmas don't exist. There is a thing called a mental delusion. It's MD, not medical doctor, no. MD, but we get stuck with mental delusions and we think they are moral dilemmas. Moral dilemmas don't exist. If there were time, I could give you seven reasons right now that it is impossible in the universe for one moral dilemma to exist. I'm talking about moral dilemma. I'm ta not talking about what my wife calls it a morsel dilemma. You go through line and it's only beans and, and lentils and they both disagree with your system and you say, oh, I'm stuck with choosing between the lesser of two evils. No, that's not a moral dilemma. Linda calls it a morsel dilemma and she's right. Okay, not moral. Moral dilemma is a matter of doing biblical absolutes. Do you believe that there are moral absolutes in the scripture? Right. And God calls us to do it. Think about the implications. If there is one time in your life that you must do what is morally evil because you have no choice, then guess who is right in the great controversy? Satan is. Because Satan claims God's law cannot be kept. Who is the liar in the situation? The moment you believe the theory that moral dilemmas exist, the great controversy is over. If it ever does exist. It's not possible. How do I know that? Jesus. What does the Bible say? He is our example. Hebrews chapter 4, let's go there. Always want to go to Jesus? Yes. I, and I said I can share with you, I could spend time here. I've done a whole lecture, 45, 50 minutes, just to scratch the surface on this whole issue. Because we are living in a society, sad to say, we are stuck in, in social or whatever, secular Christianity. We are sucking, stuck in cultural Adventist concepts, not biblical, that tout this lie of the devil that you have to choose between the lesser of two evils. We've got to go back to the Bible. The Bible says, now I'm not saying people are lying to you. I'm saying the theory is a lie. Please don't misunderstand. I'm not talking about the people. The theory is a lie. You know what? I believed it too. Okay. <laughs> so again, confession. I believe that there were lesser of two evils. And I wrote it in one of my books in 1985, 20 years ago. And I said, wow. I didn't know I believed the lie too. Okay. So I'm not being hard on you. I was stuck there too. Look at Hebrews chapter 4. What does it say? Verse 15. 
Double negative. Notice carefully. For we do not have a high priest who cannot. Let's make it positive. We do have a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses. But was in all points, what? Tempted as we are. Stop right there. So if Jesus is tempted in all points like as we are, if we face moral dilemmas in which we must choose the lesser of two moral evils, guess what that means about Jesus? He would have had to have been in the same type of situation at least once. And then what would he have had to choose? The lesser of two evils, the lesser of two moral evils. Then we would have a sinful Savior. Wait a minute. Let's read the rest of the verse. Thank God the, the verse is not over. He was tempted in all points as we are. Three more words, what? Yet without sin. The fact that Jesus was here, and please note, when Jesus was on planet Earth, he never relied on his own power ever to overcome sin. He totally depended upon his Father. He quoted the Word of God, always back to trust, total trust in God. Never worrying about the future, always faith in his Father. The fact that Jesus was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin, irrefutably proves that moral dilemmas cannot exist. Or as one of my friends says, it makes no sense to say you are morally required to do that which is immoral. Logically, it doesn't even make sense. Moral dilemmas cannot exist. They are mental delusions. What we need to pray for is called the eye salve of the Holy Spirit. You simply say, Lord, I cannot see the way out right now. I know there is a morally right way of escape. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, that's why I read it at the beginning. God is faithful. There is always a way out. I will simply have to sit tight, wait on the Lord, until you show me a way out, because the only ways I now see are morally wrong, and therefore I will wait. Throw me into the fire. But I know if I go into the fire, I will experience the presence of the Son of God. Remember? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That's what it means to be faithful unto death. That's what we're called upon, folks. The moment you think about the future, fear of the future, Abraham, I sometimes call him the father of the fearful. Why? He said, oh, I was afraid you were going to kill me, so I said to my wife, tell them you're my sister. Half a lie is a full lie. Okay? Sometimes we salve our consciences by saying, I really didn't lie. One of my favorite stories, Russia. Two cars, only two cars were on a race. And this is an important story because sometimes we tell the truth intending to convey a mistruth and we salve our consciences by saying, but I told the truth. Two cars, Soviet Union, they were going to test which car was better, a Soviet car and an American car. It was kind of a closed thing. Not many people knew about it. Journalists were there. The American car won the race. The Russian car lost. The next day in Pravda, which means, Nadia, what is Pravda? Truth, right? Yes. The name of the newspaper is Truth. The next day in Pravda. This might be apocryphal. Some American might have concocted it, but it's a good story anyway, okay? I don't know how true it was. I got it so far handed down. But if it is a true story, it's a good lesson, even if it's not. But listen to this. Next day in Pravda, here's the news. Yesterday, there was a car race. Is that true? Yes. In which the Russian car came in second and the American car second to last. Period. 
question. What's that called? Technical truth. Technical truth. Blatant falsehood. Okay. Now, let's go to Rahab's options. If she knew, because people say, okay, Rahab was not a, she was not a Christian. I understand. And God overlooks the times of the ignorance. Isn't that true? Praise God for His grace. Okay. I'm saying it again. Let's hear. Praise God for His grace. Yeah, God is good. So God rescues Rahab and He transforms her. Remember, God didn't, in the book of Judges, condemn her prostitution and neither in the book of Judges her prevarication. Remember that. And so I sometimes say to people, oh, we're in the book of Hebrews. Just go, uh, just one or two books further. Here's, please, this is critical. Before I pick up the rest of what I was going to tell you, let's go to 1 Peter. Oh, who is our example? Who is our example? 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. Got to go there, always to the Bible. For to this you were called, because what? Christ also suffered for us. Peter gives the foundation. Hey, you're saved by grace. Now remember that. Huh? You are saved by grace. Now, let me tell you what you're supposed to do. Christ suffered for us and left us what? An example that you should follow Rahab's steps. Wait a minute. Is, wait, what's my Bible say? Whose steps? Christ's steps. That's the key. There is only one model for morality that we can safely follow. And that is whom? Jesus Christ. He's the only sinless ethical example. Don't follow other human beings, folks. Never follow a human being. Period. Unless. You see? Period. Unless. Okay? <laughs> Never follow a human being. I'll tell you why the unless. The unless will come in a minute. Never follow. Let's read the rest of the... It says, follow his steps, colon in my Bible. Who committed what? No sin? Ah, Peter is saying, follow the steps of Jesus. The question earlier on, is it possible to live without sin? What's the answer? Yes, here's the rest of it. It's interesting. I wonder why. I wonder why by inspiration Peter chose this verse from the Old Testament. It talks about the one sin that is the easiest one we think about so often. Nor was what in his mouth? Guile. Guile, old English. What's modern English? Lies. Deceit. Nor was deceit in his mouth. It simply says, you need to follow Jesus. Never lie. There's the answer to the question. Very clear. Never under any situation should you deceive because Jesus says, I am the way, the what? The truth and the life. That's, that's the word of God, by the way. Don't fall for those who say, look at Rahab. My Bible says, don't look at Rahab. It says, look at Jesus. My Bible is very clear. And I'll go back to one more. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We were there a minute ago. We were in chapter 10. Finish your 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Unfortunately, unfortunately, the people put a period and they ended the chapter in chapter 10, verse 33. But actually, chapter 11, verse 1 is part of the concept. And here it is. Imitate me. Huh? I thought yeah, you said you shouldn't follow human beings. Not finished. Imitate me, Paul says. How? Just as I also, what? Imitate Christ. So here's the key. Always, never follow human beings unless they are following whom? Jesus Christ. When people lied, when they have multiple wives, when they did all these things, they were going against God's will. Don't follow them. My buddy did. He began to look for a second woman. Yes, he was serious. He believed he should have more than one wife. He wrote me a letter even. He said, this is the gift of God to me. He said, I got two brothers. One is married and happy. He has the gift of monogamy. I have another brother who is single and he is happy. He has the gift of celibacy. And God has blessed me with the gift of polygamy. 
you can dupe yourself into anything. And he began to look for another wife, and then his wife divorced him. Very sad. Don't follow Bible stories, unless, unless they are following Jesus Christ. Those principles are important, by the way. Okay, that covers a lot. We'll, we'll wrap up some of these very easily, because now that you know moral dilemmas don't exist, it should take care of everything. Yes, you should take care of all of the major questions. Now we got the foundation, we can go through the rest of the questions very quickly. We said to four, we got 25 minutes, we, we can do these quickly. We're going to look only at those that are based on ethical questions. There are some that are more general questions. I can talk with people individually after that. I'll be here. I'll hang around. I've got two more hours to wait for supper. <laughs> I, I have a supper appointment. That's what I meant. Somebody asked me to. <laughs> oh, yes. Go ahead, Curtis. Okay. What about um, the abortion issue, pro-choice versus pro-life? Yeah. How should a Christian respond? How should the Christian on that? You have to ask simply one or two quick questions there. First question is, what does the Bible say? Uh, uh, firstly, whose body is it? You've heard people say, it's my body. What does the Bible say? Your body is what? Temple of the Holy Spirit. Once you understand that as a Christian, I'm talking about Christians who are on this issue, you first understand that. Now, there's a different question is, if it's non-Christians, you know, we're talking about in the Christian atmosphere, context. That's the first thing you ask in the Christian context. So we know it's you, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. So you've got to take into account. Number one, that's biblical. Number two, the Bible is very clear, saying thou shalt not kill. I, years ago, I almost did my dissertation on the issue of abortion. Eventually, I ended up doing a paper. I came out to Loma Linda in 1989, and I presented the paper here at the International Abortion Conference. Actually, the paper is right here, Abortion in Light of Biblical Legislation. So if you're interested, and I'm not wanting to sell the book, I'm just saying it is here. Uh, I can talk with you later on. There are other places to get it. You can uh, probably download it from the Adventist Theological Society website. I'm not sure if they've updated all the articles, but it was published in 1990, dealing with all the biblical materials on the whole issue of abortion. From the biblical perspective, the unborn child is fully human. No difference. Okay? The child is dependent, just like the elderly who cannot get around to feed themselves. But you don't say because they're dependent, they're not human beings. <laughs> so according to the Bible, there is no difference. From the time of conception, all the way through, biblically speaking, if you look at the materials, and that's not just my conclusion, serious Bible scholars have gone in and have looked at it from different faiths. If you take the Bible seriously, the unborn are fully human. So, biblically, abortion is really not a question when you go to the scriptures. You simply have to ask the question, am I willing to ignore consequences? That's the key. Consequences. I asked my students at Southern one day the question, would you agree with abortion under these circumstances? I painted the worst picture of a 10 or 12 year old girl who was raped by her uncle, incest, underage, you know, all the things made her the worst. And then she, the doctors say she might not be able to survive the case, etc. And I asked all of my students before class began. 30 of them responded. 22 said yes. 8 said no. But it broke down to 25% against 75%. But you know what's interesting? You can read every one of the answers of the 22. And none of them ever went to the Bible, faith, or prayer. It was totally secular reasoning. It was shocking. I didn't know this. This was at Southern where we had 98% or so of Adventists. And they said, one guy even said, and that uncle is the first person I will kill. <laughs> I never forgot that response. 
But you know what's interesting? Of, this is the fascinating. I'm just giving you an illustration. This is before we started class. We hadn't started. I give them the pretest. Then we go into the Bible. And then at the end, we have a post-test to see how they've grown in faith. At the end. But that's a different thing. But, but of the eight who said no, six of the eight, 75% said, I will trust God. Let's pray. Let's seek His wisdom. Let's put our faith in Him. One even said, it's not the baby's fault. Why execute the innocent? And I said, isn't this interesting? Everyone who said no to abortion, at least 75% of those knew about faith and prayer and God in the Bible. And the 75% who said yes to abortion, it was like they weren't aware that there was Christianity. And they were Adventists. Wow. Key issue is do we go to God? That's the key. That's the key. So when you look at it, it's don't worry about the future. Say, what is the right thing to do? Let's go back to the Bible and search out the answer. And there are so many stories I could share with you, but I'm going to keep them short. I'll talk with you for those who have questions later on. But God is a forgiving God. Remember that. If you've been in that situation, I thank God for His grace. What about uh, if my church is following worldly ways or endorsing things that I don't think are biblical, um, or my pastor, for example, how should I respond uh, financially as well as with my membership? <laughs> yeah, you have to ask the big question. Did God call out this movement, number one? Do you believe that? Number two, you have to ask the question, does the Bible say that there will be sheep amongst the goats? Acts chapter 20, verse 28 says there will be ravenous wolves from within the church. Yeah, we have that's the reality. Okay, If it's God's church, we have two responsibilities. And I was just in a situation where somebody felt this way very strongly. And I talked with him. He said this. He said, but pastor, we have an Achan in the camp. And he was talking about his pastor as the Achan in the camp. And if you go back to that, what did they do with Achan? <laughs> they took him out and stoned him. And I said, you know, yeah, I understand. That's our natural human reaction. And then I said to him, and you know, this is what I'm trying to do in my own life, please. I said, you know, I love to go to the example of Jesus. Because we talk about an Achan in the camp, but think about this. Jesus had a Judas among his 12 disciples. And after Jesus knew that Judas had arranged to betray him, what did Jesus do? He washed his feet. As a final desperate attempt to reach that hard-hearted man, and he almost got through. Judas resisted the, that attempt of Jesus to reach him. And I said to him, this is what you should do. If you're serious, go wash your pastor's feet. He took me seriously. When communion came up, he went to the pastor and he said, Pastor, and there had been some rough stuff between these two Adventists. He said, Pastor, I'd like to wash your feet. And the pastor was stunned silent. The pastor, he told me, he stood there, he looked at him, and he said, I think that'll be okay. And he washed the pastor's feet. The pastor washed his feet. Enough said. Can you say a little more about how to keep the Sabbath? Um, By the such way, as oh, I didn't say the rest. Still handing your tithe into the storehouse. Trust the Lord. Don't say, don't ever say, I'm going to keep it back, man. You're putting yourself in dangerous area. Return your tithes faithfully to the Lord. Pray for the sinner. Have them come back. If you need to talk with the conference leaders, but remain faithful. Don't let other people's unfaithfulness 
turn you unfaithful. Okay. Um, what about um, how Sabbath keeping? Sabbath keeping. Uh, specifically, going to restaurants uh, for lunch, um, traveling on the Sabbath. Uh, and why does everyone dress up for church? <laughs> uh, I'll start with the last one first, if I can do that. Because, because, some of them have spouses who put notes in pockets. <laughs> now I'm doing that intentionally. No, the real thing is this. Let me say this. If we understand God being the king of the universe, we come to serve him. Now I'm not talking about the extreme. Some people who might show up in their tuxedo or their $20,000 dress. I'm exaggerating intentionally. I'm talking about the danger of coming here to show off your clothes. You get what I'm saying? Uh, we're not talking about that. Talking about dressing, God is a God of order, not of chaos. We want to put on our best for our maker. We want to be the least distracting. I grew up in South Africa where there were some women who would come to church with hats that we, sitting in the back row, would have to play dodgeball with. <laughs> I'm serious. There were some people who are known for that. Danger, folks, that is not dressing up. That is another problem, okay? And there were people in South Africa with these huge hats, you know, almost sombreros in church. There was one young lady, she was the pastor's daughter. I always loved it. She came with a jockey hat. Because in South Africa, they believed back then you had to have hats on. So she had the jockey cap. It was small. It was wonderful to sit behind her. You could see the pastor. But the idea of coming dressed. Dress your best for the master. Do you believe that? Yes. Okay. That's key. Key. Now let's go to Sabbath keeping principles and restaurants. Oh, what can I say without being judgmental? No, I'm going to speak. Toes sticking out, I'm going to step on them gently by God's grace. Some of us have forgotten the beauties of this day. We forgot that part of what God says in, in Exodus chapter 20, the first word of verse 8 is what? Remember. That does not mean 5 o'clock Friday afternoon, you grab stuff and you sit down exhausted. Let's have worship. <laughs> That's not remember. That is not remember. Remember means all week long, folks. All week long. Spread out your stress. <laughs> so that when Friday night comes, it is delicious. And so that the kids will say, I can hardly wait until next Sabbath when we can delight in the Lord. We have fallen so far short, it is sinful. Did you hear what I said? I used what word? Sin. We have ruined God's beautiful day. And I want us to pray a prayer of confession. Lord, forgive us for turning the Sabbath into simply a 24-hour span a break in the week so that we can rush the rest of the week and come exhausted instead of coming rejoicing and being refreshed spiritually in the Lord. Yes, we have sinned. Now, we're not even talking about going out to lunch. We were out to lunch a long time ago. I'm serious. The way we have ruined the day. And you know what I'm talking about? And that includes pastors. Yes. So we've got to be very careful. Okay? And so I don't want to step on toes and say, we all need to reform. Refor, what's the word? Reformation. And that means get serious every day. Plan ahead. Plan ahead. Cook your food. Get all the things together. Try to get up work early. And especially Filipinos. I'm at a Filipino church. There's something in the psyche of the Filipino. You've got to bake lumpia on Sabbath. It must be fresh. 
plague. What did Moses tell those Israelites? Exodus 16, do what? Oh, I've got a Filipino church, sorry. <laughs> I love my Filipino church. Oh, yes, when the conference voted to transfer me, they badgered the conference, told the conference, had another executive session and unvoted it. And I thank God for the Filipinos. They told the conference, you don't take our pastor away. And I love working with my Filipinos. So I'm not getting down on Filipinos. But I'm just giving you as an example. They say, Pastor, you must cook it. You must fry it on Sabbath. Uh-uh. Wrong. My Bible says do what? When do you do that? On what day is it called? Preparation day. Preparation day. It doesn't mean you eat cold food. Warm it up. But do all your preparation so that Sabbath is a wonderful day spent doing God's will. Do all of your preparation ahead of time. There are times when it's impossible to prepare because you might have to travel. One of our pioneers said, sometimes I have to travel from one country to another on the ocean liner and I make Sabbath a day of missionary work. But I buy my tickets ahead. I do all possible preparation ahead of time because you need to remember the Sabbath. And if you didn't, if you didn't, listen carefully now, if you didn't prepare food for the Sabbath, fast and pray, my brother. There is absolutely no reason, listen carefully, listen carefully, there is absolutely, I'm saying it, read my lips. There is absolutely no reason to have to go to a restaurant on Sabbath. None, none whatsoever. Some of us have fallen into habits that are not biblical. We let the Gentiles work for us. And somebody says, but what about our own school? Let me share with you a school that, that knew how to overcome this endemic systemic problem but at our own schools we work on sabbath uh-uh not needed i remember with glee a school that was committed not anymore i won't mention their name they were committed to believing and living the biblical message you know what they said to kids when they came to their school an adventist college when you're at home on sabbath do your parents pay you to make your bed no do your, does your mom pay you to help with the dishes? No. Well, we are an extended family. Everybody signs up here for free Sabbath duties in an extended. We all take our turns during the semester. Everybody is part of the family. Nobody gets paid on Sabbath. Aha! They were serious. Were. Not anymore, unfortunately. They were serious about keeping the Sabbath, enjoying it as an entire community. There's no reason at all. Okay? Sabbath is a day of rest, a day of sharing. And somebody says, but pastor, you earn on Sabbath. Oh, I don't earn on Sabbath. Sorry, you got it wrong. I don't work on Sabbath. What I do on Sabbath is because I love the Lord. I share the word. When I was a teacher, they paid me five days a week. I still get paid by the tithe. Why should I be expected to work seven days a week? No, I work five days a week. Sunday is with my family, my wife, day off. And Sabbath, I do things because I love the Lord. I don't get paid for Sabbath. No, I do it because I love the Lord. Okay? Does that help to answer it? Oh, the biblical principles, Isaiah chapter 58. Write it down, verse 13 and 14. I need to give you that quickly. Isaiah 58, 13 and 14. I always want to give you Bible text here. Isaiah 58, 13 and 14. Jeremiah, uh, Nehemiah chapter 13. Read the whole chapter through. When Nehemiah called for reformation, the people had been breaking the Sabbath. Chapter 13 is exceptionally clear. Don't buy, don't sell, don't trade, don't do anything with the Gentiles. In fact, Exodus chapter 20, I'll go through them again. Isaiah 58, verse 13 and 14, very clear principles there. Okay, number two, Nehemiah chapter 13, you can even read chapter 10. Don't do these things on it. And of course, Exodus chapter 16, bake, prepare, keep the Sabbath holy. Even the Gentile in your house. You got visitors? 
Hi, this is an Adventist home. We keep the Sabbath holy. And my God says, I've got to expect you to do it too. So, you know, this is the day we don't turn on the television. We don't have secular magazines out there. Come with us. Enjoy God's day of freedom with us. Even the Gentile. Everybody are supposed to enjoy this day to God's glory. How does the uh, Christian church deal with issues between husband and wife, for example, the Terry Scheibel case? Okay, the Terry Scheibel case, my wife and I, Linda and I, just had the privilege of reading a book cover to cover, Terry Scheibel case. We drove it as we, as we read it as we drove. Fun, do that with your wife. Turn the radio off, do it with a friend, let them read to you. As long as they have a good voice that keeps you awake, while you're driving, they read. You switch, you read. <laughs> you know, some people's voices, da-da-da-da-da, <laughs> dangerous, okay. All right, you know what I'm saying, okay. We don't want to put the driver to sleep. Get a good book. And we read the Terry Scheibel book through much of it while driving long distance. It's a story by Mark Furman from a secular perspective, and it helped us to see the other side of the story. The rest of the story will surprise you, but we want to go to what should the Christian do? Yes, life is sacred, folks. But there is sometimes we, we have to look at the whole issue. We don't, we, there's a thing called artificial sustenance. What I mean by that is you keep, put somebody on a heart-lung machine and, uh, and there's flat brain waves for decades and the only way you keep them alive is supposedly alive with the heart-lung machine. If you, you know what I'm talking about? Oxygen or whatever. They are artificially, it's called sustaining death. If you didn't have them breathing the oxygen that you're forcing into their lungs, what would happen? Death would take its natural course. Sometimes the problems we face is because medical science has now caused problems. If you simply turn off that machine, you're not causing their death. You are stopping the artificial extension of the dying process. <laughs> In other words, sometimes intervention is the problem. Now you, you, and I see heads nodding. We're talking about PVA, where this is unusually artificially sustained. Terry Schauber's case, she wasn't on that. She was simply given food and water. That's it. There was not, from everything I've read, it was food and water. When you read the story, it is scary. Michael Schiavo, once he won the case, he then wrote in the, and the records are there. If Terry has any infection, do not take care of her. He wanted her to die. The records are clear. And then he had a girlfriend. He had children by her. He was basically, the story is very clear, sadly. And the press doesn't know that. People say, let the family take care of it. We got corrupt families, man. That was, it was up absolute corruption when you read the rest of the story. The medical records are there. He was after the money. He wanted her out of the way. So the Shaibo case is very complicated. But don't believe people say, let the family take care of it. Sometimes there are family, you've heard of it, husband who tries to get his wife killed so he can get the inheritance. That idea of let the family take care of it is sometimes one of the most dangerous things. If it's a Christian issue, I encourage Christians to get involved, to try to help the least able. Now, I'm not saying go and kill abortion doctors. No, no. We are, we are called We are called to bring life. Jesus says, I've come to give life and to give it more abundantly. If there's any way in which we can help people, encourage them, we must follow Jesus' way. But don't get sucked into the liberal lies of the most liberal media. You know that 80 to 90% of the media, they admit they are liberals. It's a fact. So Christians must be very careful to say, but the media says, the media only presents one way out ex, uh, expression of things. And there are a few other voices out on the other side. So I don't go with that. I simply say, what does the, God, the Lord call upon us to do? He says, try to take care of the least able. See how you can sustain, pray for people, help in as kind a way as possible without condemning the sinner, trying to reach them. And guess who was reached that way? None other than 
Norma McCorvey, who was the woman called Jane Doe. She was reached by the love of a seven-year-old child who would go out there. She worked for the abortion clinics, and this little girl would come and hug Norma around the legs and say, Norma, I love you. I don't agree with what you do. And Norma McCorvey carried on in the abortion clinic, and Norma was won by the love of a child, and she became an anti-abortion writer, and she has her own ministry called Row No More. She was baptized as a Christian. It was love that won the sinner. That's the lesson. That's the lesson. Doesn't God care about all the people all over the world who are dying of starvation? How should we respond to that in this country? <laughs> Mega questions. God does care. We know that. God cares about everyone who dies, especially those who die who have never or have rejected Jesus Christ, maybe, who've never seen a better way. Yes, the Lord does impress their hearts to the Holy Spirit, but God cares. The situation we're in, obviously, is the result of Satan and sin. And all the starvation and all of that is a result of sin. It's really showing the great controversy. Is God true or is Satan true? Is Satan's lies to be believed? No. The starvation, the suffering, is obviously showing the results of rebellion against God. And sometimes the innocents suffer in this battle, very sadly. What should we as Christians do? Again, mega questions. I will say the best. When you see something that touches your heart, guess what? Do something. Do something about it. You can make a difference. Now, I haven't always done this, but I remember, Curtis, one day I was looking at the news, and there, 20 years ago, was pictures. There were pictures of people starving in Ethiopia. Does anybody remember 20 years ago? Major famine in Ethiopia. And I said, whoa, look at the starving children. What shall we do? And I was about to have prayer meeting. And I talked to my prayer meeting. I said, we got to do something. And I went to the campus at Andrews. I was a student there. And I began to talk with people. I went to the administrators. I said, we've got to do something. And I gave it a, a name, F-A-S-T, FAST. Feed Africa's starving thousands. And we started a crusade on campus. And do you know what? The people responded. $20,000 were raised and sent through ADRA to help people. You can make a difference. You might be a busy student. If the Lord impresses you, do something. When one person steps out, others respond. And I praise God, I learned it's important. Don't say, I cannot do anything. You know what that happens? You become hardened to the suffering of others. Either don't ever watch the news, or make sure you're only in a place where nobody suffers. But if you watch suffering and you do nothing about it, you're in danger of becoming hard. So do something, no matter what it is, do something. God can turn your little drop into a stream, into a large river that can have a major impact on many people. A couple questions left. How should the Christian approach euthanasia and physician-assisted suicide? Yeah, I kind of touched on those already. Um, euthanasia is an, is an oxymoron in a sense. The word means good death. And some people have gone to the extremes of now injecting things. It all comes back to a major issue called trust in what? Trust in God. And I'm not going to minimize suffering, folks. I'm not going to minimize it for a moment. I know what it's like. In fact, this morning, I just shared, if you have a chance to... Go to LLBN, Loma Linda Broadcasting Network, and watch the story. I, I shared there very frankly, only at 12 to 15 minutes. I was in pain, in so much pain and suffering, 
I never had suffering before, never had pain. I could never understand people. And I, I understood last, later on why the Lord needed me to learn. Because I, why do these people complain? I had a wonderful pain-free existence, pretty much. Other than the occasional stomach ache because I'd overeaten. But you know what I'm talking about? No real problems. And then I fell under the tree. And the pain was so excruciating that twice while I was lying on that hospital bed, I wished to God that I had died. The pain was driving me nuts. I know what excruciating pain can be. And we said, I don't want to live, Lord. I cannot live any longer. But guess what? You're still talking to God. There are two or three characters in the Bible. Elijah, Moses, Noah, and not Noah, Jonah, who were all in the belly of the fish, who were down in the dumps. They said, life is not worth living. Did you know those three characters actually said it? Life is not worth living, Lord. But what were they doing? When you're discouraged, keep talking to God. Don't go to your friends to say, let's kill ourselves. You've heard what they do in Japan now? Yeah, it's the latest craze. Three or four people communicate by email, and then they go to one place, and they all commit suicide together. Yeah, it's a suicide uh, email internet groups now they're forming. They don't last long because they, they find each other. It's true. It is the craziest thing. You come together and you... It's, it's sad, but it's weird. Now, if you're Japanese, I'm not saying to you about you, but this is what I read. I said, this is crazy. They come together, they commiserate, and then they kill themselves. Haven't you heard of that? Anybody heard of that? Two, three? Oh, good. In the mouth of three witnesses, the thing is confirmed. Yeah, now you know I'm not lying. Like, this is crazy. If you are sad, if you're down in the dumps, if you're suffering pain unbearable, where do you turn? God, help me get through this. Yes, I was on 200 milligrams and I, of morphine per day, and I was still crying for help. I understand pain. I'm not minimizing it. The point I'm saying, as, as the well-known C.S. Lewis, I quoted him negatively last night. I'm going to quote him positively now. C.S. <laughs> Lewis says this, pain is God's megaphone to a deaf world. Did you hear that? No, you didn't. <laughs> okay, you know what I'm saying, right? Pain is God's megaphone to a deaf world. Thank God for pain. It stops us. It makes us also turn to Him. Euthanasia, absolutely not, if it's a matter of killing somebody. It's helping people through that. That's the idea. Helping them to see God. God who suffered for them. God who can take them through. So I don't go with a physician of suicide, murder. Uh, do you want to answer a question on war now? Yeah, let's go to war. We're ending on the battlefield. <laughs> okay, we'll die here. <laughs> Thank you for staying around, those of you. We're just at 4 o'clock. We said before, if you have to leave, we did start about 5 or 10 minutes late. You'll notice that. I only got up here 2.35. War, war. Can I have a prayer with you? Holy Father, I prayed before, I pray again. Speak through me now. Your kind words, guide and direct us. In Jesus' precious name, amen. I intentionally had to pause for prayer. I get sometimes worked up. When I get off the platform, my wife says, calm down, come back to earth, Ron. And I know I get too excited. And this is a very sensitive topic. So Linda's not here to keep me grounded. I needed to pause. I never want to minimize the importance of patriotism. I want to start right there. 
I was born and raised in South Africa, and I thank God. Notice carefully. I thank God. Ooh, I hope you're not riding on the seat there. I thank God that I was raised in a country where I was disenfranchised. I was discriminated against. I never got to love my country. I never have a problem choosing between love of country and love of God. Because from the time I was raised, I only had one citizenship. So I never had the tussle that the people in the United States have. I got here, I married an American. I am an American. But I am astounded at the amount of patriotism. I've never seen so much. I've had a chance to live in other countries. This is probably the most patriotic country in the world. And I know God started the movement here intentionally. Adventism needed to start here. I praise God for that. But Americans have the incredible danger of seeing country as being almost equal with God. And so it's always dangerous. Now let me quickly tell you what the Seventh-day Adventist Church's official position has been for 140 years. And still is the official position. I'm not talking about practice now. I'm telling you what the official position, hey, you know, people say, but, but I thought official position is if you get divorced without biblical reasons, you can't get remarried. And if you do get remarried, that's official position. But, but so-and-so, we're not talking about the wrong practices of people. We're talking about what we as Adventists believe officially. Official Adventist vision has not changed for 140 years since the 1860s when it was hammered out. When the Adventist pioneers said this, we cannot go into war as combatants. Because, and I'll get to the issue of war in the Old Testament in a minute, but hold on. Pioneers, I'll go backwards after. Because to go into war as combatants means that we have to break the sixth commandment, thou shalt not kill. Oh, but it means thou shalt not murder. Wrong. The word is ratzach. In the context, it does, you look at the word, you study it. Even new translations are coming up, and the new, some of the new translations are going back to thou shalt not kill. Do not kill. Because the word does not mean murder. Fascinating. Ratzach, 19 times means do not kill intentionally. 19 times it means do not kill unintentionally. Life is very sacred. Fascinating. It's there, very clear. I have an, I have an article that you can read on that. Every time you can go to concordances, you'll find that out. It's mistranslated, blubbedicated to murder. So don't come with that argument. We'll get to the Old Testament in a minute. So the, the early pioneers said, we shouldn't go into war because the Bible says, thou shalt not kill. Period. That's what they say. And I can give you all the biblical evidences for that. We'll go to the Old Testament. Hang on. We weren't on there yet. Okay. Don't kill. Don't ratzach. Hebrew, lo tirzach. Very clear. And I'm not the only one who says that. Other biblical scholars have dug into it. It's there. Now, our pioneers said, we don't believe in killing. And number two, what is the second reason? Sabbath. They said, you cannot join the military and keep the Sabbath. I've heard of so many Sabbath problems. Cannot do it. It's almost impossible. No, I didn't say it. Totally. And so our pioneers said, we therefore will become what? Non-combatants. Now, in case somebody's wondering about this, I've been interested in this for 20 years. I've had the chance to go to the National Servicemen's Organization. I talked with Dick Stenbach and the previous guy there in charge. He gave me, gave me dissertations, theses. I have about a thousand plus pages I've collected over 20 years. I've been digging and studying and eventually, if the Lord gives me long enough time, I'm going to go and work on that, study that next time. But that's down the road. Okay. But it's fascinating. That was our pioneer's position. And they therefore said, we cannot go to war. Yes. 
period. And if you choose to go in as a combatant, there was even disfellowshipping. Yes. Serious. It was a serious issue. You could only go in as what? If you're going in to save life. Save life. That was our position. And 2003, Eckhart Mueller, Biblical Research Institute, I'm a member of the committee. We have a worldwide committee. Eckhart Mueller published an article in the BRI newsletter and said categorically, and he's right, the Adventist official position has never changed. What has happened? Our practice. We do whatever we want. So we find people going to war as combatants. And we have the irony of the Gulf War. I remember one university president, Adventist University, said we had the irony in the Gulf War of Adventist bombing Baghdad in the first Gulf War, while fellow Adventists were fleeing for their lives. Adventists in Baghdad being bombed by Adventists from America. Where have we gone, folks? Our practice is not according to our belief. That's the reality. Once we recognize we have one country, our citizenship is in heaven, then we've got serious decisions we have to make. Very serious. Now, I've changed my own belief, by the way. I used to believe one way. I've had to change it as I've dug into it. And so I, I prayed before, and I'm not here condemning. I'm selling the reality of our position. Our position is different from our practice. And you know what's happened? I know this man. I visited with him. I spent an hour with him. We have a sociologist, a sociologist who claims to be an Adventist, who is a practicing homosexual. Now listen carefully to his reasoning. And he is correct. He's absolutely correct. He says, listen, the Adventist position was hammered out on the Bible on war. Our practice has moved how? On a biblical basis? No, on a sociological basis. Aha! He says, we believe from the Bible homosexuality is unacceptable. Well, what are we doing over there? Let's move over there, man. We, let's go on a sociological basis. For what? Let's accept practicing homosexuals as full regular members and they can con anybody can continue in homosexual practice because we have moved from our principles to a radically different practice and this sociologist well-known well-respected I visited with him I talked with him he even showed me pictures of his husband mm -hmm. he showed me he said yes let's be consistent serious challenge the question is either we must change our official position or let's come in line with it. That's the question. We're inconsistent. Now, I'm not condemning anybody. I'm telling you the reality of what is out there. I got a friend of mine. He was a Navy. He's, worked, he's in the Navy, okay? What, 15, 20 years. I, I understand the situation. But I'm saying we are not following what we claim to believe. So we've got real big problems with that. Now, let's go to Old Testament. I'm just telling you the official evidence position, our official practice, and we got serious, serious problems. Let's go to the Old Testament. When you go back to the Bible, you study it in full context. It's interesting. The issue of war is always given in the context of the theocracy. God as leading his people. Write this down quickly. ATS, what was that, Jason? ATS.com. The Adventist Theological Society, there's a journal. Put into Google search, put an Adventist Theological Society. I want to send you to a journal. You can read an article, eight pages long. It provides 90, 95% answers to all of these questions by Pierre Winandi, a Swiss, French, retired Adventist theologian from Europe. The Europeans, by the way, see this very clearly. Why? Because they got sucked into patriotism and then supported Hitler. 
They've seen it from hindsight, and they are very clear on this position. The church got split, in a sense, over this whole war issue. The Europeans can see it much clearer in some ways than we can. We, I'm an American. Pierre Winandi wrote an article, God and War in the Old Testament. Pierre, P-I-E-R-R-E. And you'll find it at the Adventist Theological Society website. Adventist Theological Society. There's an article there by Pierre, P-I-E-R-R-E. You'll find it under his first name if you put Pierre Winandi, W-I-N-A-N-D-Y. I'm not saying it answers all the questions, but you'll find many answers to that. In a nutshell, I'll summarize it here in case you kind of get to the website and ever. P- uh, Winandi shows correctly it was never God's plan for the Israelites to ever go into war and to kill. It was never his plan. They went in because they wanted to be like the nations around them. And he shows the collective evidence in eight pages. Now remember, I told you I have a friend who wrote a 200-page master's thesis on this. Winandi has only got eight pages, so don't say, oh, the answer's on that. Read the more full works. Okay, so here he shows it was never God's plan for them to go to battle. Never. He would take care of them. Sit back, stand back, and see the salvation of the Lord. God is the life giver, is he not? God knows the heart, does he not? He gives people probationary time until he knows they have finally turned the door and there's no more hope for them. Then he removes the life when they've rejected the life giver. And if, by the way, if God ever made a mistake, he could just resurrect them, right? But we know God doesn't make mistakes. But God then, the people wanted to do it. Make, give us a king, an example, so that we can be like the nations around them. And God said, okay, you want to be like a king? You're going to suffer? Yeah, we want to have a king. We don't want to serve you. And the theocracy, all of those things in the context. Read Winandi's article, one of the best I've seen in a nutshell. Read broader. And in the theocracy, God said, you want to go? Okay, I'll do it. And when they trusted God, then God took care of them. Repeatedly, consistently. It's an incredible story. Now, I said I agree with Winandi, maybe 90%. You know, I agree with the Bible 100%. You've got to read it in its context. And you know what? When did the theocracy end? When they said, we have no king but Caesar. We don't worship God. The end of the theocracy came, John chapter 19, and then they crucified Jesus. That was the death now, and the theocracy formally died slowly when the uh, AD 34, when the gospel went to the Gentiles. There is no more theocracy. We don't have God leading a people anymore, a people who want to do it their way anyway. So I say the theocracy is past. Looking in the context, there is no nation led by God. There is a Christian nation worldwide. Now here's the challenge to you. So what should we do? I say, imagine, imagine if Adventists were evangelizing, were going to Iraq and Iran and all of these places as missionaries in whatever capacity, self-sacrificing and saying, they need radiologists, they need doctors, I'm going to go there and just be a Christian in my lifestyle and begin to witness as appropriate and as I can. Imagine what would have happened if they'd been able, Christian Adventists had been able to reach some of the Iraqis who were the leaders, and instead of killing them, converting them. Do you believe in the power of the gospel? Yes! Our task is to come and to bring people to the Lord. Let Him take care of vengeance. Leave it totally in God's care. Now I'm summarizing, as I said, maybe 150 pages or so, but you read the whole story. We as Christians are called to a mighty task. I know the military has taken our language. They go into the service. They go on a mission. That's Christian language. That's what we used to talk about ourselves. Be careful. They co-opted the language of Christian work, work, witness. We must take our language back in a sense and let us go out to share the gospel out there to save life 
not to kill. And somebody said, yes, but Ron, uh -huh, I'm even going to quote Gandhi, not a Christian, because they put him on the spot. Lifetime Life uh, magazine um, uh, editor was there filming, talking to Gandhi, taking a, uh, doing uh, something on his life. That was when he was assassinated. 1947, Hitler had arisen, and he was what? A pacifist. And she came to him and she said, Gandhi, what would you do with Hitler? You've got to defend. You've got to go in there and kill. And Gandhi said, uh-uh, wrong. I teach my people that. And this is not a Christian. Okay? I teach my people that every soldier knows when he or she goes into battle, you go into battle willing to die. But we will, and he actually said this, we will not reduce ourselves to the brutish practices of the British. We will stand and take, we'll be willing to die. And India was able to get rid of the British that way. Gandhi said it can be done with peaceful means. Gandhi said it. Do you believe it? Let me read you one last statement. Listen to this. This is now a story from a, a, an attorney. His name is Tom Morgan, talking about Ashley Smith, the woman in the hostage crisis in Atlanta. Remember I told you about her? When Brian Nichols came in with two guns, and she told him about her faith. She witnessed to him. She saw him not as a criminal to be killed, but as a soul to be saved from God's kingdom. Did you hear that? I only have two people who agree with me, but that's okay. We can start small, okay? That's how she saw him. <laughs> that's true. She saw him as a soul to be saved. She did, not as a criminal to be killed. And so what did she do? She told him about her faith. She told him, and listen to this. The lawyer said this later on. I don't mean this sarcastically, the lawyer says, but a widowed 26-year-old mother was able to do in seven and a half hours of talking and praying, this is the secular news, folks, of talking and praying what all the cops and all the guns and all the radios and all the agencies could not do. What do you say? That's right. In the secular press. That's the key. We have been so secularized, we believe like the rest of the world. Let's get back to basics. Let's get back to seeing souls to be saved, not criminals to be killed. God's way is that way. Rather die than kill the one who needs Christ. Self-sacrifice. Greater love has no man than this, that a man will lay down his life for whom? His friends. And Jesus went to the next step and was willing to die for his enemies. That's what we are called to. We need a radical change in our thinking and our practice back to our old principles. And Dick Stenbachen, who was director of NSO, National Servicemen Organization, admitted, he said, yes, Ron, our practice has changed. And that's why he was willing to give me all the materials. I told him, Dr. Stenbachen, I want to do a study of this historically, biblically, and see what has happened to us as Adventists. And he made all of these copies free. I said, how much do I owe you? He said, you can have them free. Generously giving the stuff because I want to dig in and I need, we need to call each other back to that call of Elijah. If God is God, then what? 
Serve Him. Follow Him, folks. We've got to get serious about our commitment to the Lord. Let's get serious. Let's go out to seek and save souls. Let's reevaluate. Primary, your allegiance is to God. You only serve your country if you can do so without violating those biblical principles. And we have a position that we believe we hammered out on the biblical basis. We've somehow slipped away. God forgive us for doing that. I know there are many more questions. I might have challenged you. I might have stepped on toes. I hope I did it gently enough. I'm willing to spend another hour and a half here with you. Let's, if you want to do that, let's do that in a gentle way. And if I have ruffled feathers, if I've been too unkind, ahead of time I say I'm sorry. I share sometimes too passionately that I forget to put the C-O-M in front of it. The compassionate. And I just thank my Lord that He is so gracious to us. So kind, so forgiving. So if we talk later on, we might talk a little excitedly, but let's make sure the passion is covered with compassion. Okay? I'm going to invite all of us to kneel. Now I'm sharing this one because I know it's a tough one. It's a major one in the United States. And I'm only fortunate that I've been able to see it as an outsider. Sometimes you need somebody outside, an objective one. I'm a little more objective than people who were born and raised here. So I hope I've given you something to think about. Let's put our energies into reaching anybody whose soul needs to be saved. Put our energies, our time, to going out to share the gospel. Let's kneel together. Holy Father, we've touched on some tough subjects, some touchy subjects, Lord. Yes, things that affect us personally. And Father, firstly I ask you, Lord, if I have been unkind and unchristlike in any way, Lord, forgive me. And if my brother or sister has felt that way, if I need to speak to anyone individually, give me the right words. May they come to me too, Lord. Lord, these difficult ethical issues, these are very personal. Yet, Lord, we know we want to let the love of Jesus shine through us. Therefore, Lord, transform our way of thinking. Lord, you've done it for me in so many areas. On the matter of war, polygamy, abortion, oh, so many different areas. You have, by your grace, based upon your word, called me back to being truly closer to the clear weight of biblical evidence on these subjects as I've seen them by spending time fellowshipping with other Christians and digging more into the word. Help me to be open as my brothers and sisters might share things with me I might not have seen. And Lord, help us all to grow closer to Jesus. Transform our characters so that others may see him in us and that they may be drawn closer to Him. Help each one of us, Lord, to grow in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be glory, both now and forevermore. Amen. God bless you. As I said, I'm, I'll stay around. I do have that 6 o'clock appointment, so I'll be here another hour and a half. Be glad to visit with anyone here. Let's spend a few more moments in thoughtful reflection. And uh, God, good, Godspeed. Keep walking with Jesus.